In the 1960s, a Maritimer achieved Canada-wide fame for his talent in gardening. Known as Mr. Green Thumbs, this kindly old man put out no fewer than four massive best-selling books on gardening, and he ran a popular regular radio show on how to grow plants. Mr. Green Thumbs, many dedicated fans likely didn't know that behind the friendly voice and the kindly writing style of the old man was a devoted lifelong communist who was so dedicated to his cause that soon after the Russian Revolution and the establishment of the brand new communist Soviet Union, the radical gardener went to that new country to see the revolution in action for himself. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Roscoe Fillmore grew up in a small farming community in Little Lumston, Albert County, in New Brunswick. My own father's family actually grew up on a farm near there as well. And I can personally attest that it is hardly a hotbed of radical sympathies. Nonetheless, Roscoe Fillmore became perhaps the most outspoken socialist in the Maritimes of his time. He often compared his first encounter with socialism to a religious conversion. As a young teenager, he had become sick and he had been sent to live with his grandmother in Portland, Maine. On the streets of that city, he happened to hear a socialist speaker delivering a speech, and he was instantly enthralled. Any kind of social welfare state back then was basically non-existent, so the pull of a socialist ideas in the context of a social justice wealth distribution wasn't really that unusual in the early 1900s. On its more moderate end, the believers of these socialist ideals were fighting for things that we take for granted today, like a national pension plan to take care of the elderly, halting child labor practices in factories and even mines, a national Medicare program instead of having to pay personally out of your own pocket for doctors and hospitals when you got sick, and increased rights for workers who are often toiling from dawn to dusk. On the more extreme end of the spectrum, though, believers in communism would be advocating for a violent overthrow of the governments of the world and the creation of an entirely new society of worker-led and worker-owned factories, businesses, and governing through collective decisions. The gardener was definitely on the more radical side of this spectrum. Teenage Roscoe Fillmore began distributing socialist literature and pamphlets on the streets of Portland but he soon caught tuberculosis. He moved back home to Albert County in New Brunswick to recuperate, and there his father got him a job in a tree nursery. Almost immediately, Fillmore demonstrated an unusual talent for all things related to growing plants, virtually instantly becoming a highly respected horticulturalist. None of this dampened his enthusiasm for politics in the slightest. Quite the opposite, in fact, he became a founding member of the Communist Party of Canada. In 1909, he was arrested in St. John for blocking a sidewalk while distributing pamphlets. He later wrote, 
Of course I was an extremist, a fanatic. I freely pled guilty to this. The charges against him were ultimately dismissed. He continued relentlessly on his lonely quest to establish socialism in Albert County, New Brunswick. Although almost certainly aware of his ideological beliefs, because he was certainly not shy about spreading his ideas around, apparently the provincial government didn't feel that the skinny gardener with the unruly mop of long hair was particularly likely to lead a revolution in New Brunswick. In 1913, the government offered him a job taking charge of an experimental orchard in Fredericton. At the time, governments were generally quite scared of so-called Reds, which was slang for communists, and most governments were firing people for suspected socialist and communist sympathies during that decade. However, Roscoe Fillmore's unique talents in horticulture apparently outweighed any discomfort about his political beliefs. The federal government, however, was distinctly more wary of Roscoe Fillmore. Fillmore was one of 30 Canadians who were prosecuted for attempting to form a Soviet government in Canada, according to the charges, after the Winnipeg general strike in 1919. Fillmore's alibi for these charges, which you have to admit is quite compelling, was that he hadn't been to Winnipeg in 11 years. The prosecution effort against him ultimately went nowhere, but nonetheless, the RCMP kept tabs on him for the rest of his life. Fillmore was living in Fredericton when the 1917 Russian Revolution broke out, in which communists, for the first time in world history, successfully seized power. He became obsessed with the news about it, coming from the other side of the world. He wrote, I resented Sunday because no newspapers came out that day. I've no doubt I became something of a damn nuisance to my friends and neighbors. They preferred not to know. Writing about the events of the Russian Revolution is complicated. The Russian Revolution quickly turned into the Russian Civil War, which dragged on for several years and led to the deaths of a staggering six million people. It had so many factions fighting for so many ideologies, it's definitely not within the scope of this podcast to get into it. But let's just say that some Canadians hoped that the Soviet Union would fulfill its promise to become the world's first worker-led nation at a time when aristocratic elites like kings, kaisers, emperors often ruled countries. And Roscoe Fillmore was definitely one of these people hoping for the best during the revolution. Six years. After the new communist government first took power in Russia, the civil war was over there, and the communists had won. The new government in the Soviet Union appealed to skilled workers around the world to come help them rebuild their new country. Roscoe Fillmore applied to assist in building the country's agricultural sector, which had been devastated during the civil war, and was in the midst of a crippling drought. In February of 1923, I received a wire which electrified me. I had been accepted to go to the Soviet Union. He was desired by them for his unique talents in gardening. He was to be paid quite remarkably well for his efforts too, with the Soviet Union's government offering to send his family $100 a month to cover their expenses while he was gone. His wife, 
would not be coming. Margaret was not a convinced socialist and had serious doubts. Also, she would be staying behind to care for their four young children. His father drove a horse and sled 40 miles in a snowstorm just to see his son for a few hours before he left. My father kicked like a steer when I told him I was going to the Soviet Union. He was at least partially convinced he would never see me again. Fredericton's Daily Gleaner newspaper got wind that Roscoe Fillmore was leaving and offered him whatever the opposite of best wishes on his travels were. The newspaper wrote that Fillmore will try own medicine over in Russia. And the newspaper also howled accusations that he was carrying on what has been described as a communist school in Oromocto and being involved with distributors of communistic literature said to have come to the city after dark by a motorboat. I don't know where the newspaper came up with that, but there's absolutely no evidence of any of that. Honestly, there's a, actually a decent chance Roscoe Fillmore was the only communist in the whole province at the time. Only 35 people came to his big farewell party before he left. So the newspaper may have been overstating his influence a little bit. Also in the 1920s, that particular newspaper, which is actually one of the ones that I write for today, had a real flair for the dramatic. A front page headline on that same day that that article I read the quotes of was published said, Man swallows false teeth in sleep. So take that with a grain of salt. Roscoe Fillmore went to New York City to get a steamship called the Hansa, bound for Germany. The trip took him 10 days. I was on my way to help in an experiment I still look upon as the most daring and important human society has ever set up. Roscoe landed in Germany. He spent 10 days on a sort of limbo, waiting for his travel documents to be processed. The inflation which later swallowed Germany was even then in evidence. The day we landed, a dollar would buy 21,500 marks, which pre-war was valued at 25 cents. In 10 days, the mark had gone down in value so that $1 was worth 45,500 marks. For the first and only time in my life, I was a millionaire. He noted the dark impact that inflation had on Germans. In the hotels of Berlin and Hamburg, there were young, fine-looking girls who were offering themselves as bedfellows for as little as a bar of soap. I found it rather disgusting. Fillmore spent several days in Hamburg buying farm machinery to bring to the Soviet Union. With great difficulty, he made it through the newly formed Baltic countries of Estonia, and then Latvia, and then Lithuania, which had been ravaged by war, and whose fragile democracies were already slipping into autocratic dictatorships. And then his train crossed into the Soviet Union. On the frontiers to the Soviet Union, we crossed, passing an arch bearing in several languages, the inscription, Workers of all countries unite. I will not even attempt to deny I was deeply moved. Interrogated by armed Soviet guards on the border crossing, Fillmore had a much easier time than he had in the Baltic republics. His high education and skill set got him treated with some deference. As the train passed into the Soviet Union, Fillmore met a well-dressed elderly woman. A former aristocrat herself, she harshly and loudly criticized the Soviet government on the train. Roscoe Fillmore disagreed, but he noted that he was happy that she was openly disagreeing with the government. He had heard rumors 
the power in the new communist country had increasingly been centered in the hands of a small group of people who were restricting freedoms as opposed to the worker-led leadership councils he had hoped were ruling the country. As the train entered the outskirts of Leningrad, Roscoe and the elderly woman watched from the windows as the train passed the ruins of large buildings and the rubble of once had been enormous factories. Roscoe wrote to his wife that it was the first city he'd ever seen that he wished to live in. The elderly woman wept. Without further issues, Fillmore was allowed to proceed. While preparing his autobiography, much later, in 1968, he wrote, We arrived at dusk in Leningrad. It was disappointing. There was still a great deal of rubble, and... Um, you hear of people who die writing unfinished works, but we often think of that as a figure of speech. In this case, it was literal. Roscoe Fillmore died there, mid-sentence. But all of that's much later, in 1968, when he was writing his memoirs, which was 45 years after the trip. His son, Nicholas Fillmore, later wrote a biography about his father in a book called Maritime Radical, which fills in these gaps for our story about what happened in the Soviet Union. Nicholas wrote that his father was not naive and had kept a sizable folder of various opinions on the success or failure of the revolution, including American anarchist Emma Goldman's criticisms of it. This is likely why Roscoe Fillmore had emphasized how happy he was to hear that the elderly aristocratic lady on the train was openly criticizing the government. Roscoe was aware that some writers claimed that the People's Revolution had been taken over by a small group of men who collected power and restricted press freedoms. However, he'd collected news clippings publishing outlandish and untrue things as well. And after all, he knew what the Daily Gleaner had written about him as well. In Leningrad, he watched a remarkable eight hour-long May Day parade, which helped relieve any doubts that he had that the revolution had somehow become corrupted. After that, he briefly passed through Moscow, and then onwards through the Ural Mountains, all the way to Siberia. He was sent to a mineral-rich little town called Kemerovo, where a place called the Anonymous American Colony of Kuzbus had been established. Before the war, a massive chemical factory had begun construction there, never to be completed. Fellow North American believers in the revolution were coming here to finish the chemical factory to provide some badly needed goods to the new communist nation. Immediately after arriving in Kuzbus, Fillmore was shocked at what greeted him. The supposedly already established American colony's housing was only partly completed, and people were living in boxcars and tents. Owing to the complete lack of toilets, there had been an outbreak of typhus, and some of the people who had come from other countries believing in the revolution had died. While some 400 people still remained in Kuzbus, 57 of them had recently gone home. When Roscoe Fillmore arrived there, he was the first new colonist to get there in months. 
Roscoe Fillmore was put in charge of establishing gardens and was given command of a team of 40 local people called Tartars. His team were mostly women, and the specific area they lived in had suffered greatly from being caught in the middle of warring armies during the Civil War. Finding the Siberian soil to be fertile, he and his team successfully planted 35 acres with different types of fruits and vegetables, including beans, peas, lettuce, tomatoes, cauliflower, cabbage, radishes, potatoes, and melons. The colonists' living conditions improved rapidly, with new buildings being constructed, and sanitary conditions, including toilets, water, and electricity, were established. More foreigners arrived, rapidly swelling to a population of over 2,000. The foreigners established new methods and efficiencies in local coal mining and factories, doubling the production. However, Fillmore began to have doubts about the overall situation across the Soviet Union. He knew that his wife was sending him packages of Canadian newspapers, but none ever arrived. He suspected that the news that was actually being allowed into the country was being censored. Government officials were strangely tight-lipped with foreigners. And most alarmingly, although he knew that Lenin, the supreme leader of the country, had had a stroke, he was unable to find out any information about the brewing power struggle to succeed him that was going on in faraway Moscow, a struggle which would soon become very bloody. However, Roscoe Fillmore was still enjoying himself there in Siberia. The Kuzbus colony grew rapidly, featuring a library, a newspaper, a school, a medical clinic, a cobbler, and a laundromat. He wrote his wife inquiring whether she would like to move there. His wife, however, avoided the question in her letters. His team of Tartar workers, on the other hand, did not live on the colony and had vastly inferior living accommodations. Contrary to the communist ideals of equality that had attracted Roscoe Fillmore to the country, his Tartar team were being paid a mere fraction of what the foreigners received and often were being simply paid in meals. The colonists, who remember were all committed ideological communists themselves, pressed the Soviet government for higher wages for the Tartars. The colonists' requests were rebuked, and when the government replied, they said that the foreigners produced greater benefits for the economy, and therefore should be paid more, and they didn't want the workers to grow spoiled. This must have been alarming for the communists. After all, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto famously said, From each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. In the next few months, Fillmore wrote increasingly enthusiastically about his time there. His own project was going well. The garden was growing marvelously. The vegetable crop was going to be impressive. He enjoyed long walks alone in the Siberian countryside, where he was astonished by the number of brightly colored wildflowers. He wrote home gushing about having tried new food that New Brunswickers had never heard about. Sour cream. He did eventually return home from the Soviet Union, though, somewhat begrudgingly, to return to his wife and four kids. He also returned with his faith in politics shaken, although not completely shattered. 
I was in my 36th year, no longer an enthusiastic boy. But I no doubt wore rosy-tinted eyeglasses, for I admit many of the things I saw looked better to me than they actually were, in fact. Had I been on my way for a few days, I might have brought home a wonderful story of miraculous progress. But I was almost a year in one of its most backward places, Central Siberia. He toured the Maritimes, talking honestly about what he saw in the new Soviet Union, both the good and the bad. This, however, had the effect of angering both his fellow communists, who were offended by his criticism of the Soviet Union, and by also offending the general public by offering positive sides to communism. He was fired from his job. After a period of struggle, they moved away from New Brunswick to the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. There he established an apple orchard. More struggle awaited, as just as his apple orchard began to do well, he was faced with criminal prosecution for his past political activities. He was eventually exonerated in court and allowed to return to the apple orchard just in time for the Great Depression to hit. Fillmore never totally gave up on his politics, but he came to focus more on gardening than politicking. Over the next few decades, he published four books on gardening, which came to become massive bestsellers. He toured the whole country, talking to gardening clubs. He hosted an extraordinarily popular radio show called Mr. Green Thumbs. And this kindly old gardener, in his signature worn-out old cardigans, became a beloved figure all over Canada for his remarkable knowledge of, and care for, plants. Few of his many fans, though, knew of the gardener's radical past. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.